We're back and. <laughs> <Fuck's> Sorry. <sake. laughs> you were just waiting to do that. I was. Got him. User error 51. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Dan. We're back and we've got something of a hashtag ask error special. And remember, you can use the hashtag ask error to send us questions either on Twitter or in Telegram, or you can email us. If you go to error.show slash contact, you'll uh, find the form there and you can fill that in and send us your questions. So the first one is very simple. Spoopy month, question mark, Y slash N underscore. So Popey, you, I think, are a bit down on this whole thing. I think, Dan, you're a little bit more jovial with it. Uh, what do you think about Halloween lasting a whole month then? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's bad enough that it lasts a weekend. And I have to shut the blinds and turn all the lights off and hide inside so all the kids come around trick-or-treating don't, you know, see me through the window. But the fact that I go online and all I see for the entire month of October is people showing off their fancy dress, some of which are really quite creative and brilliant, and some of them have, like, put a cardboard box around themselves and said, hey, I'm an Amazon delivery or something. You know, it's, yeah, I hate it. I've got my, my carved pumpkin. Just sitting here, hanging out, waiting for for Halloween day. I'm about to probably carve another one actually because it's gonna die. Yeah, it's gonna rot, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's it's getting dried out faster than I thought it would. So I don't know. I've got some Halloween decorations up and stuff, and we've been watching scary movies and all that kind of stuff. I think it's fun. Well, I'm somewhere in the middle. I think that it's all fun with the stupid memes on the internet and everything, but I'm fucked if I'm dressing up or like doing anything serious. But a few, you know, rattled jokes and stuff and, uh, you know, the stupid memes that you see. I think it's all a bit of fun. I think you need to be less of a grumpy bastard, Popey. Well, so we used to have uh, Ubuntu Developer Summits. Uh, the UDSs often fell somewhere around about um, Halloween. And often that would be delightful for all the people who were going along and would say, oh, great, I can take a costume and we can get dressed up and all that kind of stuff. And I, I would just shudder because, I don't know, I just... I don't like the idea of dressing up. Although I did dress up for one of them, um, and I was the only person who did. So that maybe that's why I don't like doing it, is because the times when I dress up, nobody else does, and when everyone else dresses up, I don't want to. So yeah, I'm just a contrarian. That's all it is. Mentally scarred. Mm. I'm just trying to enjoy it all before the Christmas stuff starts. You've got Thanksgiving in the meantime. Yeah, but nobody cares about Thanksgiving. It's like Christmas immediately. Like, it's they're barely holding back until the day after Halloween, and then it's Christmas from now until infinity. <laughs> well, I actually quite like Christmas now. I used to hate it until I alienated everyone that I knew and managed to spend Christmas completely alone in my flat drinking. That sounds like an ideal Christmas. It is. It's fucking brilliant. Alienated because you kept giving the, the word of God to everyone, or what? No, I just sort of said, oh, I'm not interested in Christmas. Oh, I don't want to do Christmas. I hate Christmas. Leave me alone. And then people eventually did leave me alone, and it was awesome. <laughs> right. Okay, so you're just being a bit of a misanthrope. Christmas is a humbug. Hmm. I wake up whenever, have like a huge fry-up for my Christmas breakfast, then just get drunk, play my guitars, and play with Linux. Like, what else do you want to do on Christmas? I quite like the cooking side. It's I, it's quite I, I quite enjoy having the family over and doing all the pigs in blankets and roast potatoes in you know duck fat and you know a nice big joint and I, I love that kind of side of it and the kids opening all their presents and eating sweets until they're sick and all that kind of stuff. I quite enjoy all of that. But yeah, after a while, 
I do want to just go and retire to a small room and everyone to just leave me alone so I can either play with my toys or try on my socks or whatever it is I get for Christmas. Well, I love Christmas and I love Halloween because I just get to do it my own way. Okay, second question. Are the DistroWatch rankings worth the pixels they are rendered on? So as we know, the rankings don't really mean much in terms of who's using what, because Linux Mint is always top, and we've kind of taken the piss out of them before. But what do we think? Does DistroWatch and the rankings and the charts and everything there have any value at all? Well, Manjaro's the top now. Mint's not the top anymore. Ah, we may or may not get back to Manjaro later. Mm. I have a theory about DistroWatch rankings. Yes, they have some value in that some people who want to get information about new releases can get it from DistroWatch. It's a news site that's quite comprehensive in that it gives details about, you know, what releases out, a summary of what's in it and all that kind of stuff. So it is a useful site. It's a useful resource. But specifically that Distro ranking thing on the right hand side, my perception is that it is a ranking of distributions which have poor SEO. It is as simple as that. Because if you Google or whatever search engine you like for any distro if it has results on the first page it will almost certainly include results that include the distro watch page so if you do a if you do a google search for manjaro you can be almost certain that the distro watch page will be within the top half of the first set of results well just on elementary os uh, and it's elementary.io is first and distrowatch.com slash elementary is the second so let's try manjaro well there you go and this is not a measure of how many people use those distros by any stretch it's people who are searching for those things and then hit that page because it's one of the first hits um one of the first results that Google returns. And Google is a popular search engine. You might say, well, what if I use Bing or Yahoo or AltaVista or Ask Jeeves or whatever? The results will be similar, but the vast majority of people don't use those search engines. The vast majority of people use something like Google, right? Yeah. Now do the same exercise and search for Ubuntu. Well, I've just done that for Manjaro and Ubuntu, and it's both roughly the same, sort of about fourth for DistroWatch. That might be my Google bubble, but I don't know. Yes, and for most people, you search for Ubuntu, and actually DistroWatch is not on the first page. And for some people, it's not even on the second page, because there are a ton of websites with Ubuntu in the name, including the Ubuntu website, OMG Ubuntu, and a load of other news sites, plus a load that we own, Ask Ubuntu and stuff like that. And so people click through to those rather than go to DistroWatch. And so if you had more popular websites and more of them, then that would push DistroWatch down the rankings in your Google results. So it's my theory. That's my theory. It's a very rational explanation for what could otherwise be just very sour grapes that you're not top. (laughs) Don't you have to like mark your computer as wanting to be counted or something? Like, isn't there like some, I remember there being some kind of thing where it's very much like only counts people that are actually like regular distro watch users or something weird like that. So it's like an indicator of what people who go to distro watch think is important news. No, there's a few things. It's a bit hidden, but the, as I understand it, the ranking on the right hand side is based not only on the page that you go to, but also people who visit the release notes. So when a new release comes out, if lots of people click through on the release notes, that counts. But I don't believe that the code that that lets you know what that ranking, the algorithm behind that is public. So it's hard to know, but that's the way I understand it. 
Are you telling me that DistroWatch is closed source proprietary <laughs> software? Uh, I haven't seen the source, so it must be. Yeah. Get it out of here. <laughs> That's all I can say to that. But hang on, Dan, your distro is like second or third, depending on the time span that you give it. So you obviously believe that it is top-notch, accurate information. No, not at all. Not even. <laughs> I don't I don't think DistroWatch is a, a much of a representation of anything. I mean, we were also uh, more popular than uh, a story about a cam girl on our Linux. So I don't think uh, El Marriage is more <laughs> popular than masturbation. But The other thing to think is the vast majority of people who run most of these Linux distributions never use DistroWatch. Like, why would you ever visit DistroWatch if, if you're just happily using a piece of software and, you know, you're going about your daily life on whatever, Facebook, and you're reading your email and you're chatting to friends on some kind of messenger thing and you're doing development work in Visual Studio Code. Why on earth would you visit DistroWatch? What is the point? There's no reason why normal people who are quite happy using Linux will visit DistroWatch. And those people vastly outweigh those people who are distro switchers and constantly flip-flop between various distros. And those are the people who are looking at DistroWatch. Not normal people, but distro switchers. That's my theory. Send uh, hate mail to Joe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's some some of the distros that get up there. It's like, I've never even heard of them. Or you're almost certain that the user base is quite small. And and it bumps up when there's a news article. So when a when a when a new release comes out and people are clicking through to read the news, sure that will cause that to bump up. That doesn't directly translate into number of users or number of machines sold with that on, or how much people like that distro or how many applications that distro has in its store. None of that is being measured. It is just clicks. That's it. But isn't that a sort of um, objective view? No. <laughs> okay. No. Right, I've got a bit of a heavier one for you now. It's not quite as heavy as last time, don't worry. Is universal basic income a good idea is the question. And so just a very quick explanation of universal basic income. It pretty much goes that everyone in a country or area, whatever, gets given a certain amount of money per month, per year, whatever, no matter what. There are no means tests, whether you are super rich or super poor, everyone gets the same amount of money. And that should, in theory, be enough to live on. And then if you want to go to work and make more than that, then that's fine and you're not penalized. But if you want to just sit and play Xbox and, you know, live fairly frugally, then you can do that too. So uh, what are your guys' opinions on this? Good idea or bad idea? I, uh, I'm in favor of universal basic income. And, and for me, I think one of the strongest arguments um, from even a conservative viewpoint about it is that uh, we already have things like welfare programs and uh, the means testing for them is expensive and doesn't seem to actually uh, do anything. Um, all the statistics we have show that means testing for welfare programs never really finds anything. So it kind of seems like uh, that it doesn't really make sense to to have means-tested welfare programs. If we decide as a society that we want to um, combat homelessness and, and that we want uh, people to be taken care of, then it seems like that it would be more efficient uh, to just implement UBI. I'm in two minds because uh, we, I say humans, have tried this multiple times. So 
It's been tried on a small scale in Finland, Canada, US, India, and Namibia. And the US did it back in the 60s and 70s. And they discovered that the people that were getting the universal basic income in the, the test area uh, were between 7 and 17% less productive than if they weren't getting the basic income. Is that a bad thing? Well, I don't, I'm not sure. Like, do you, do you want people to be staring out the window? Do you want people to be not productive members of society? There's, there's one argument that this improves creativity because you're not having to slave away to earn a pittance. So you have much more freedom and flexibility to sit and think and maybe be, take up things that you wouldn't normally have done if you're slaving away as a wage slave, right? Um, but the flip side of that is maybe you're less productive and things still need to be done. You know, f- crops still need to be collected and, you know, posts still needs to be delivered and bins need to be emptied and water needs to be purified. And there, there's stuff that we still need to do as humanity. Ah, but do we? Is that not where the robots come in? We are heading towards automation, aren't we? Yeah, totally. Um, but also the humans that are left... Um, still need to be kept healthy. So I, I agree with Dan that it makes sense for us to keep our workforce healthy, even if some of them are not actually working. And the, in Canada, they did it more recently, uh, 70, 74 to 79, they did it. And there was a drop in hospital visits among the people who had the universal basic income. So people, I guess, were able to feed themselves better, uh, take care of themselves a bit better if they had a little bit of income. I also remember about the Canada study that some of the results were that divorce rates went up uh, because women were getting educated and going out and uh, kind of uh, exploring their own career paths and, and they weren't locked into these marriages. So I think there's there's something to be said for uh, marginalized groups and the freedom of movement that it allows them and, and not being economically locked into situations that, that they don't want to be in. Right. And it's not, we're not talking about them getting tons of money every month it's not like they're you know completely pillaging the welfare state for all this money the the one there's one running at the moment in finland and i think there's two thousand people involved and they get 560 euros per month for two years so it's not a huge sum of money i mean if you're if you're on a very low income then 560 euros does sound like a ton of money but once you start paying for your bills, that money soon runs out, but it, it, it keeps the wolf from the door. You can, you know, st- I know plenty of people who have less than that and have three kids to support. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think in general, once you've worked out the kinks and figured out, um, how much is the right amount. And I think it's a good idea generally, but I think you st- we still need more trials. Doesn't it depend on everyone having adequate shelter and healthcare first? or giving them enough money to cover that. I mean, it doesn't really matter which way you do it, which way round you do it, whether you have private health care and make them rent or buy their own houses or flats or whatever. But you have to take care of that as well. You can't just say, here's 500 quid a month or whatever, because that's just not going to cover everything that you need to spend it on. No, but it's not designed to cover everything. Ah, well, that's the difference, right? So you're saying that it's kind of supplementary. Right, because it's not means tested. So I could be going out to work and it's a little bit extra. That means that maybe I could um, have a car instead of taking the bus, or maybe I could take the bus instead of walk. That, like I'm still, I'm, I may still be working, but this makes my life a little bit easier. Right, yeah. So that's one type of basic income. But what I'm 
thinking about here is more like enough to completely live on and not have to work because there will be so few jobs once automation completely takes over, which, mm. okay, it might be another 50 years. It might be five years. Who knows? With the rate of technological change, probably more like split the difference, like maybe 15 or 20 years before most jobs are totally obsolete. No, I, I disagree with that. Humans have changed over over time. And this same conversation was happening in the industrial age. And when the motor car came out, like, what are we going to do with all the horses? And what are we going to do with all those people and farriers and people who look after horses? These people are going to be unemployed. There's going to be horses roaming the streets. There's going to be farriers, like, begging bowls out. No, we adapt and we find different roles. All right. So what jobs are going to be available for then apart from programming and fixing the robots and like wiping old people's asses what other jobs are they going to be i don't know but 100 years ago we didn't know either 100 years ago we didn't think it consultant was a job you know that, that wouldn't have been like when you go and see the careers lady at school i know 100 years ago they probably didn't have a careers lady at school but, <laughs> you know when you went to talk to an adult about what my career might be then it would almost certainly be well do what your father did or do what your mother did or you know do something that the local community needs whereas now it's you know you could you could be a a cabin crew on a plane or you could be the person who puts the baggage on the plane or you could be someone who delivers um people's shopping you know th these are all jobs that did not exist a hundred years ago or a hundred plus years ago and so i think it's i think it's a bit arrogant of us to say uh these jobs the these jobs for humans are all going to disappear and they're going to be humans roaming the streets with no with no possible jobs there will be jobs they'll just be different jobs i don't know i could see joe's point because i feel like that a huge political talking point right now is jobs and about uh securing jobs and, and i feel like that if we live in an economy that depends on people working when the economy seems to function without those people working then it's kind of a broken system uh there's kind of this um story or joke or uh, myth maybe be about uh, an ambassador that goes to China and he's interacting with the ambassador there and he sees uh, these men who are um, like digging a road or something and they're using pickaxes and shovels and the ambassador asks why they aren't using machinery and the Chinese ambassador said, oh, this is a works program. And then the U.S. ambassador goes, oh, oh well, you should give them spoons then. Right. You know, it's kind of like... <laughs> Like we're we're in this kind of thing where like we're trying to make up work because we don't really have that much stuff to do, and and I think we are going to get to a point eventually where like unemployment's going to be a really big issue, but but I think for now what we do need to focus on is like the super minimal like you know food and shelter kind of UBI, and I think that we can shelve like there are no jobs left UBI for you know fifty years from now or whatever. I somewhat agree with you, but I think having that universal basic income would unlock people's creativity to come up with uh, roles to do uh, that they might not have come up with if they were um, having to worry constantly about where the next meal is coming from. If you don't have that worry, which a lot of people in Western culture just don't have that concern, then that opens your brain up to be more creative about things you could do. Well, yeah, like if I had to worry about where my next meal was coming from, there's no fucking way I would have ended up a professional podcaster, is there? <laughs> I mean, talk about a made-up job. Right. There you go. hundred years ago, I'm going to sit and chat to people about the news for an hour, and then people will sit and listen to that on their way to work the next day. Yeah. Like nobody would have expected that to be a thing a hundred years ago. There might have been some soothsayer who thought it was a good idea, but 
like general this is what i mean these these jobs like if we look forward 10 years um then yeah maybe it wouldn't be a good idea to go into training to be a long distance lorry driver because that may be you know automated out of existence and it probably doesn't make sense to train to be um someone who works behind the counter in a shop because that job will likely be replaced by robots as well. There's a whole there's a whole class of, of roles that are going to be automated out of existence, and it doesn't make sense for you to train in those. But that doesn't stop you being creative and coming up with new things. I don't know what those are, but I'm pretty sure some clever people will invent new roles and we'll you know, be the old guys sitting in a rocking chair in 30 years' time going, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. Should have thought of that 30 years ago. It does seem like more employment is trending towards like the entertainment industry as like a broad kind of umbrella. But it it also seems like that we have a huge problem in that an industry based on information in an age where it's really easy to share and download content. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to base our economy on advertising right now because it's really hard to actually monetize that content. And we have like journalists struggling and publications closing. And it, it just seems like maybe an information based economy isn't necessarily a robust direction that we can just continually sustain. And yet there are people who are paid to take things out of boxes on YouTube channels. Like, <laughs> it, it, the, the the roles that there are right now are completely ludicrous and the ones in 20, 30 years time will be even more ludicrous to us, I think. But do you think that's sustainable to like continually base more and more jobs on advertising revenue? And do you think that's good for like things like free speech too? Like should should we be basing things on the whims of advertisers? Well, it's been the case for longer than any of us have been alive it's not this is this is not new like newspapers used to have adverts on the front page they would have tiny little adverts for you know some medicinal thing or some performance that's going on in a theater those were adverts on the very front page of newspapers a hundred years ago and this 100 years later we're still doing the same thing we're putting adverts in front of youtube videos the media may have changed and the method by which those advert that advertising is delivered may be slightly different but the fact that that is sustained by advertising is no different. Tackle that cough with smooth menthol cigarettes. <laughs> that sort of thing, yeah. Yeah, it hasn't really changed if you think about it that way. But if everybody is trying to make money doing something creatively, then eventually we're going to run out of people to consume that created content, aren't we? Like everyone's got a Patreon, everyone's creating something. And eventually, you know, who's going to consume that content? No, because I think we create different things. Like, um, like my son might create content by, you know, playing video games online, but my daughter would probably do a live performance in a theater. So there are lots of different creative endeavors. Some people, even now in, you know, 2018, there are people who are creating fanzines, paper fanzines that they, you can buy and they will post you. Um, yeah, there, there is, there is a myriad of ways in which people can be creative. And you could, if you unlock that with universal basic income, I think that's a great opportunity. All right. A quick question this time. How much does your email address matter? I read an article a few months ago and saved it and uh, rediscovered it the other day. And it was talking about how 
back when you were a kind of kid, when you first get on the internet, you have these crazy email addresses. And if you don't dump them for an official sounding one, your proper name or whatever, then it can hold you back later in life. I mean, how do you feel if you get an email? Do you ever look at anyone's email address or is it always just a display name? It depends on the context. Uh, we've been hiring recently. And if I get um, a CV, a resume through, and the email address is like at AOL.com, I'll kind of I'll kind of cringe a little bit. Um, yeah. That won't stop me reading the rest of the resume, of course. But yeah, my brain subconsciously does look at that and go, "Ha, lol! Look at that idiot." But what if it's like Night Demon sixty nine or whatever? Yeah, they're, for the roles that we're hiring for, they're generally not. They're generally bright enough to change those. Yeah, um, I'm now thinking back to my first email address that was fat dot bloke at england dot com uh, when, nice. they, when they were giving out free email addresses. Unfortunately, that didn't last forever. Um, I was going to email you. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it's the same with like any any of these screen names or avatars or nicknames or whatever. People, I, I've seen people change their Twitter handle, you know, because they're not happy about the image that it projects. And the same thing for email addresses. I, I think it's, and it's not just the first half as well. You're like, um, uh, what was uh, Homer Simpson's email address? Was it Chunky Lover at AOL dot com or something? Um, <laughs> it's not just the, it's it's both halves. Like it's the first half that you know that's your creative bit. You know you're a putz if you if you go through life keeping that Chunky Lover half, and then it's the second half. Like I say, the AOL dot com or you know if someone's got a Yahoo email address, I'll cringe a little bit. But that's me being judgmental. I don't know. But are you judgmental if they don't have their own domain or is like Gmail or Hotmail? right no gmail's gmail's okay i'll i'll look down on hotmail obviously what about mac.com or whatever icloud yeah icloud or me.com that just tells you something about their allegiances a little bit or it might just tell you that their first computer was a mac or well an iphone most likely like old people tend to have an icloud or whatever because like they're old people yeah well like old people baby boomers or whatever whose kids or grandkids set up their first email account for them they tend to end up with icloud emails i find yeah it just seems like it's something for like technical users that it's easier for them it, to them it's just part of the computer it's part of the operating system yeah i mean do you judge people then dan um i don't know i mean it seems like for the most part that most like social media is trending towards using real names um so i think that the more we're using real names that the usernames can find a fade away and they don't really matter um if somebody's got something like offensive you know like blatantly offensive like i think that that kind of, you know, is like, hey, you know, I don't think it's necessarily appropriate to to maybe work with that person. But um, if it's just something like kind of off color, then I don't think it really matters that much. Yeah, if it's like named after a Pokemon or something like that, then that's all right. Yeah. Okay, what will tech disrupt next? So I've seen in my lifetime on the internet iTunes and then later Spotify come along and just disrupt the music industry and file sharing and, you know, piracy for want of a better word. And then Netflix and Amazon and, you know, the various streaming video services come and just completely disrupt that to the point where you've got Netflix shows winning Emmys and stuff now. And I'm thinking other entertainment wise, the theater, the movie theater, the cinema hasn't really been disrupted. MoviePass are trying bless them but that's just not happening and um again in the cinema like 3d 
That was just a fad that came and went and has just failed. So what will tech disrupt next? We've seen obviously Uber and um, Lyft disrupting the taxi industry. So what's left? What do we think, what do we predict will be the next thing? I think um, cashiers and servers at restaurants are are big up on the chopping block right now. Yeah. When we were in um, Og Camp uh, recently, we discovered the the glory that is you can sit in a pub and use an app to get to do your order. And you could just sit there and type in what you want, choose it from a menu, press a button, and someone just brings it to your table. And there's minimal human interaction required. And no money changes hands. It's all magic internet beans that get transferred via your phone. Um, so, yeah, I'd agree with that one. Have you been to a place with self-serve taps yet? Mm, only self-serve coffee machine, not self-serve beer. Oh, yeah. I went to a place in Colorado, and they have, I don't know, 20, 30 taps up, and they give you an NFC card, and you just go tap it, and then they charge you by the ounce for whatever you pour. Wow. Yeah. That's a recipe for liver failure, if ever I thought so. One. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I like the sound of that, actually. I, I, I've never been a fan of the whole... Um, bar queuing process so if someone could if someone disrupts that so you don't have to like oh no he was before me or you know wave at the barman and you know that whole queuing system which isn't a queue it's just a rabble a pile of people like trying to get in first people waving money at the barman and stuff like that if, if you can disrupt that brilliant and i like the sound of an nfc that i can just wave over a thing and get you know liquid out of it that's that's good i approve of that one what does that mean for rounds, though? I suppose not much if you just can use the same NFC on whatever tap you want. I don't know. For rounds, rounds are much less of a thing than they used to be, I find. Um, I don't know. Maybe because I'm old and I don't go out with other people who drink beer a lot at the moment. But I don't know. It just seems like, well, you could. You could go up to the, the thing and go, all right, I'll get the beers. What does everyone want? And then you just tap the, all the ones you want and then carry them over like you normally would. The only thing you've eliminated is the person you're talking to on the other side. Yeah, and at this one, they had different size glasses and stuff. I didn't see if they had, but I'm sure they probably had pitchers and things. You could go just, you know, fill up a pitcher. On the subject of cinema, I think uh, in terms of disruption, I think Netflix has done a good job there because Netflix original films, like if I want to go and see a film, I do not go on the internet and look at what's on at my local cinema. I open Netflix and look for films on Netflix. Isn't it all just Adam Sandler shite, though, on Netflix? No, not really. Um, there's still plenty of stuff there that is in my queue that I, I would like to watch at some point, and new films that pop up. Some of it's just like background noise that you just leave on while you're doing something else. But I I never... I, I never go looking at what's on at the cinema. It used to be when I was a kid, we would get the newspaper out and, and flick to the, to the cinema page. Oh, right, granddad. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> uh, it was all fields around here. And you'd look at what was on, like, let's go to the cinema. That was a thing you did. But now it's not let's go to the cinema, it's let's watch a film. And you, it, the cinema isn't the, the, the venue. I mean, they've tried to make it, you know, appealing, but by having like more luxurious seats and being able to buy beer in the cinema. Um, but it, I, I, I think Netflix have, have eaten a lot of the cinema's lunch because people are willing to watch stuff on a small screen. Like whenever I hear people say, oh, you never watch, why would you bother watching films on like a phone or something? People do. People like sit and watch stuff in bed or on a plane or like, 
people need to be less judgmental about the way other people consume content because people consume content on all kinds of ludicrous sized devices. I've seen people watch entire films with their phone held vertically so that the video is like, I don't know, two inches across or something <laughs> yeah. stupid. Like you compare that with the giant, like multi speaker cinema system with a, you know, a huge screen and loads of adverts and a comfy chair and people will contort themselves laying on a sofa watching video on a, on an iPhone, you know, in letterbox format because they want to watch that film. It's not because they want to go to the cinema, they want to consume that content. And so anything that disrupts the thing that you're getting and not the place that you're going. So, you know, disrupting the beer that you're getting, it's not about the bar, it's about the beer that you're drinking. It's not about the cinema, it's about the film that you're watching. So you've got to think about the, the thing you're getting, not the venue, I think. I've got a great idea for how to disrupt cinema, okay? What you have is a cinema that is exactly like a normal one. You go, you sit down, you watch the movie, but... When you need a piss, you can pause it. <laughs> Everyone else will have to just wait, but, you know, it might not work out if there's too many people there, but that's what puts me off. Like, I don't want to miss it, and I don't want to sit there desperate for a piss. I don't know, am I just like an old incontinent man or something? Yes. The movie just never progresses. It's always on pause. People just taking turns yeah. pissing for an hour and a half. Yeah. Well, it'd be like American football, just like two seconds of action, pause. <laughs> Make a day of it. I think... Uh, VR has an opportunity here for disrupting social life. Like it, it's, it's already, uh, gaming is already one of the things that people do, like instead of going to the cinema or instead of going to the theater, it's, you know, people play video games. It's a massive industry. I think VR has the opportunity. Uh, if it gets good and gets cheaper, uh, I think it has the opportunity to steal time that people would have had socializing. They'll stay at home and socialize in VR rather than out in the real world. And I know people have predicted this for many years, but it's starting to get to the point where the devices are cheaper and the video quality is actually quite decent. I guess some people already do that with like uh, massive multiplayer online games and things like that, right? But right. I don't know. I still feel like there's there's something different about going out um there's just a different atmosphere to it than than engaging in some online games and things yeah well it's like you know i get to talk to you probably quite a lot online but when we actually get together a couple of times a year and have a pint face to face it, it there's nothing quite like that and the best vr in the world wouldn't compare to actually being there looking in each other's eyes and you know <laughs> playing darts yeah <laughs> I, yeah i agree but it doesn't have to take away every single occurrence. It just has to take away some of them to be disruptive. It doesn't have to completely take away. Like um, self-driving cars haven't taken away cars that you drive yourself. And, you know, Deliveroo hasn't taken away the fact that people still go out to meal. It's certainly reduced the amount of people go out because they can get f nice food delivered. And I think we would still meet up on those like two occasions a year. But in between that, Maybe with VR, we'd meet up more often because it's more accessible for me to just pop on my headset and have a chat to you. And while we're playing darts, virtual darts or virtual cards, you can be drinking your cheaper beer or cider or whatever you're having. And I can drink whatever I want in my location. And we're still chatting to each other. We're still playing games. We're still interacting, but not in the same space. And we never have to worry about buying around. Mm. Right. Last question then, the last hashtag ask error, and that is, if you had to switch to a different distro, what would it be? So 
this there are various levels of switching to a different distro I suppose let's go easy mode first. So you can, well, I can go for a different flavor of Ubuntu. Rather than Zubuntu, I would go for Lubuntu because I think that's the most interesting new one, certainly with the 18.10 release with LXQt. So, um, Popey, yeah, you you can't go for KDE Neon because you run that already. Wait, what? Why, why can't... Uh, you- you're imposing additional rules. You said this was easy mode first. No, that, that would be super easy mode because you're fucking already using it. You're using Ubuntu on one machine and Neon on the other. So you have to pick something, a third, you know, you could say Ubuntu Mate if you want, even though you somewhat co-founded it. Okay, so my current two machines, well, three machines that are sat on my desk in front of me right now. One's running Ubuntu Mate, one's running Ubuntu Gnome 18.04, and one's running KDE Neon 1804. And I have to choose something that's not one of those three, right? Yes. Then I choose... Ubuntu 18.04 Unity. Nice. Okay. That's pretty easy mode there. Mm. Back to your old faithful. Yep. So, Dan, easy mode. You can stick with an Ubuntu base if you want. Um, I mean, that's a tough one. I feel like that, you know, on the one hand, like I'm not a huge fan of GNOME shells. So I don't know if I would really want to do uh, Ubuntu GNOME. Um, maybe, uh, Ubuntu proper with a, it has enough tweaks to Gnome shell that it would be all right. I've kind of got a, a soft spot a bit for XFCE, but on the other hand, you know, there's some stuff that it's kind of lags behind. It doesn't really get the latest stuff very quickly. So I don't know. I guess I, I guess if I'm going to stick with an Ubuntu that I probably would go for Ubuntu proper. Okay, right. So you wouldn't go for Ubuntu Mate with Cupertino layout then for a bit of familiar layout? No, because I feel like that that um, you get into this weird uncanny valley kind of mm. thing where it's like you can you can kind of force something to maybe kind of look like something else, but you can't ever make it work like that. And so it's not worth it to like just lipstick over something. You might as well go for something that's like a fully designed experience. You realize you've just described elementary versus macOS, but let's move on from that quickly. <laughs> All right, hard mode. Uh, Popey, go. What is hard mode? And why Why? Why can it not be Ubuntu-based? Because let's just imagine a world where Ubuntu ceases to exist for no uh, reason that we can explain. It just ceases to exist. Right, so... We've woken up on Monday morning and I can't use Ubuntu anymore because the archive is all down and there's no security updates, so I wouldn't want to run it because it's not there anymore, right? Yeah, and, and don't cheat and say Debian. It's got to be something totally different. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> um, that's really tricky, actually. I, 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 I would have chosen Debian. I probably would have chosen Debian. Well, solid choice, obviously, but that's, that's sort of slightly less easy mode, really. Okay. And and I've got to try and justify why I would pick one of these others. I'll tell you what, I would probably, oh, I don't know. I, I it's the the one thing that I the one thing I did think was I would probably spin my own <laughs> distro because <laughs> and I would base it on Debian and it would look very much like Ubuntu. All right, well, that's a bit of a cheat. It is a cheat. But, well, let, let's come back to you for your proper answer. Think about it a little bit more. So, Dan, what would you do if it couldn't be Ubuntu or Debian-based? So, um, I think, see, and I think I actually might be more inclined to do this than the former, is uh, I would probably look at something like maybe the uh, Fedora Silver Blue or whatever. All right. Like, just go, like, what's the craziest, like, weird, you know, all containers kind of thing? You know, just do something totally different then. Yeah, oh, that's a good answer. My answer is pretty boring. I'd go for Manjaro because it's 
sort of close enough to what I'm using already. It's XFCE. And it's number one on DistroWatch. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I said we'd come back to it. Ah, so there's the full circle. Right, so you've had two seconds to think about it. Go. I would... The, the reason I use Linux is because I enjoy using it, right? And I, I like using it on my machine, but I don't like being a sysadmin. So I definitely don't want to use Arch because I don't want to get into that that problem where, you know, system D breaks on some update and I have to go and read some blog post. And I'm not about to do that. So that knocks out anything that's Arch or Arch-based, which leaves me in a... Uh, a bit of a quandary. I I really don't know, and I would love to hear suggestions from other people of what you would use if you were given this ludicrous situation that Joe has put me in. Because <laughs> I actually can't think. I mean, I might. No, I I just can't. I can't think of anything that I would use. You can't bring yourself to say Fedora, can you? Is the bottom line. I don't really like the experience. No. I've been using quite a lot of distros in VMs to test stuff. Yeah. And I I, I don't like the experience that Fedora gives. So I, I, that that would, I'd find that frustrating, I think. I might give it a go. I might give it a go. But no, I, I just don't know. Well, this episode we found out that Popey would switch to OpenSUSE. <laughs>